everyone. Welcome back to Around the Room. I'm Daniel Ennis. This is another episode of Ask an Expert with Dr. Janet Pope. Last time we talked about diagnosis and investigating scleroderma. Today is scleroderma part two. We're going to be discussing management. If you have questions or comments, please get in touch through the CRA Twitter account or by email. And we usually announce the upcoming topics in the CRA email blast, so keep an eye out for that as well. Janet, welcome back. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm pretty good. Thanks very much. So I, since our last conversation, I was actually really looking forward to this because um, I think scleroderma can be pretty scary. And if you don't see a ton of it in clinic, it can be quite overwhelming in terms of what do I need to treat? Why do I need to treat it? What's the outcome I'm looking for? When am I going to stop? And so I really wanted your help in terms of uh, kind of finding my way uh, through that that thicket. So maybe the way that we, I was thinking about talking about it is we're going to kind of go organ by organ, and uh, I, uh, and I can get your pearls on each of them. And so maybe first thing to do, because it's kind of the first thing that, that I see when they walk in, maybe we can start with skin. So what when do you need to treat skin, and what do you use to treat it? So, uh, Daniel, it's a million-dollar question because <laughs> we don't all agree. But in general, the data would all be in the diffuse cutaneous systemic sclerosis, so the diffuse subset, whereas there's really no randomized trials of treating skin itself in the limited. And so we tend to think you would try to treat when you think it's active and there's some degree of reversibility. So in early diffuse, when we're giving immune modulation, it's probably um, for the skin and or things like early organ involvement like lungs. And so when we're treating it, it's early on, but should they be on that treatment indefinitely? That's really tough to say. And you're expecting a change many months out. So it's not like methotrexate and RA, as we all know, where we're going to see methotrexate taking effect fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. And so, so to that end, you mentioned you want to treat it if and when it's active. How do you tell clinically that someone's uh, skin is actually active? So early on, the patients that feel their skin's warm, like their hands are cold from Raynaud's, but um, I often say you can fry an egg over their forearm if it's really hot, warm, uh, hot or warm. Um, Often it's itchy because they have edema and they have uh, histamine granules and other things. Mast cells are active in the skin. So heat, presence often, but not always, presence of tendon friction rubs. Uh, The change, so it's the, you look at the delta in skin score, oh my, they were last time just um, beyond their wrist approximately, and now they're um, almost to the um, elbow. So you go, that's a big change, it's active, it's rapidly progressing. Um, But I think anybody who's presenting with a history that it sounds like it's early, and they're in a diffuse subset, I think anybody could warrant a trial of an immune suppressive because it could be active. But when they're all 10 years out, not all patients, but when a patient is 10 years out and hidebound, the skin is cool, um, you don't detect real inflammation when you're examining, no tendon friction rubs, um, not warm to touch. Those sorts of patients, I'm not so certain that they would respond at all to our traditional methotrexate, mycophenolate, mofetil kind of meds. Hmm. And and further to that, then, 
does does it matter to you if the skin is completely bound down or it's kind of early lower grade modified rodent skin score even if diffuse does the degree of the scleroderma actually influence the decision to treat well i think that it influences the prognosis people less severe might get more responsivity because they're not already sort of glued to their subcutaneous tissues right. but uh, the location, if once you're either above your elbows, above your knees or truncles, so in other words, uh, diffuse, or there's not many limiteds that actually go to mid forearm. So if the patient's already like from fingers, hands to mid forearms, I'll probably treat them saying you might be diffuse and we have to, instead of waiting over time, just get on with treatment. But you are right on prognosis that if someone's really hidebound, it's um, not a good predictor. And we looked many years ago as a sub-analysis of our methotrexate trial and also looked at the old D-penicillamine trial, which was negative. But we looked at on on equal skin involvement, who was more apt to do better? And I guess not so surprisingly, you were more apt to improve if your hack score was lower, probably because it was, although the skin was involved in the same areas, the skin score was in fact even the same because we matched for that, but they still had good enough function, which maybe means it's still the depth was different. Okay. Gotcha. So so you mentioned the the major treatments that you use, so methotrexate and mycophenolate mofetil. Um, typical doses as for other diseases, anything special we should know there? Right. So what I can say is the trend, uh, particularly in the U.S., is more going for mycophenolate mofetil and early diffuse, um, trying to get to 3,000 milligrams a day. Why that over methotrexate? Because it has the data of scleroderma lung study too, which we'll talk about lungs later, but where it is um, relatively um, helpful on average to the lungs. And because a lot of early patients who are going to get lung involvement, they do get it early on as opposed mm -hmm. to later. It might be way worse later, but they often develop it um, in the first uh, many months of disease. And for methotrexate, often targeting um, the trial that we did um, was up to uh, only in those days, 15 milligrams a week, which is now we would think very low dose. And uh, Dr. Evanden Hugen and his group, when they did their methotrexate trial, they were 15 and the occasional patient was on 30 milligrams. But the traditional wisdom now, which would be anecdotal, not proven, would be 25 milligrams once a week. And just as a pearl, um, mycophenolate mofetil isn't all that great on skin. So scleroderma lung study too, two-thirds were uh, diffuse, one-third was limited. So limited probably aren't going to change their skin score, right? But in that two-thirds group that where the skin score might change, cyclophosphamide, which we don't use traditionally at the beginning of immune modulation, but oral cyclotimes one year and then nothing was twice as good on skin improvement than mycophenolate mofetil three grams a day for two years. So don't think ever that we're going to get these giant responses because we're using what guidelines are suggesting or what some clinical experts are suggesting. Hmm. Okay, interesting. Okay, so um, that gives us a sense of skin. And maybe we'll, we'll kind of touch on biologics and which uh, biologics are, are valuable for skin, kind of as we get to the lungs. Maybe we'll move on then to a different organ. So let's cover kidneys. So I, I know you do a lot of service at the hospital, and you take care of a lot of um, a, a scleroderma renal crisis. So I'm wondering how you approach the management of, of that. 
Right. So we do have to have a high index of suspicion. And it's funny when you say a lot, scleroderma renal crisis is very uncommon. So Mm -hmm. in any year as uh, seeing a lot of scleroderma, I might see zero to two patients with renal crisis, whereas I probably see not all new, but I probably follow 300 or more scleroderma patients. So just in scleroderma renal crisis, uncommon, but the, you know, the, the phenotype is early, diffuse, more in men than women, rapidly progressive, often, but not necessarily already having other organ involvement, such as pericardial effusion, usually a a cardiomyopathy isn't diagnosed yet. And then they might also, but not necessarily have um, ILD, Uh, they might have uh, pleural effusions. So they look like they're rapidly progressing. Um, If they were unlucky enough to be given glucocorticoids because their skin's so um, hot, they can't function to get dressed, things like that. Prednisone is a risk. So those are the kinds of patients. And of course, almost all of them are RNA polymerase 3 positive, but that isn't available in many of the ENAs. I think in Calgary, it would be, but in a lot of our other institutions, it isn't. Mm -hmm. And then when we get to treatment, number one, get the blood pressure down as quickly as possible. Number two, if you don't, and or if they present with renal impairment, they do worse. So not getting the blood pressure under control rapidly is a poor predictor, no kidding, of renal impairment. And having renal impairment already is a poor predictor. So starting ACE inhibitor. So the traditional data were with um, um, uh, Captopril, and it can be BID, TID dosing. So if you want to start at 6.25 milligrams, then start it. If their blood pressure doesn't crash, which by the way, it won't, make it TID or QID. I often just start more at medium high dose and change it to BID dosing to get maximum dose on day one. Mm-hmm. And then nephrologist will say, oh, their creatinine's going up. You have to stop it. And it's like, well, they don't have renal tubular um, uh, problems or they don't have renal artery stenosis. This is scleroderma renal crisis. This isn't malignant hypertension where you in malignant hypertension on top of normal essential hypertension, you want to make sure that they perfuse their brain as you're going down on their blood pressure. For scleroderma, that patient most likely had a totally low normal or normal blood pressure last week. So you want to make it very fast. When you do the ACE, I often use as well enalapril because it's available in every formulary 5BID and up to maximum dose uh, within a day, get to maximum dose. And then whatever ACE it is, and not an ARB as first line. So ACEs work because of um, their, they lower renin, but so do ARBs and so do beta blockers. ACE inhibitors work because they vasodilate, they improve bradykinin, and that seems to be what saves lives in renal crisis. So ARBs don't work. So if you add an ARB on, sure, why not? I wouldn't, I wouldn't bother, but I'd add something else and I'll get to that. But you can do um, an ACE at full dose from the beginning. Then you can do whatever you want to get it down. Uh, labetalol, alpha beta blocker, um, calcium channel blockers, intravenous drugs, um, whatever else you add to get it down is great. And I just, uh, the other sort of clinical pearl is a lot of them are wet because they have a pericardial effusion. They have maybe peripheral edema, but they're dry at the kidney levels. Those kidneys, the the um, arteries are in extreme spasm. And so you don't want to dehydrate them. So even if they have total body water up, their perfusion is probably low. So I have an IV in them usually 
both arms and you want to just watch fluid balance. Most of them had hearts that weren't going to go into heart failure because the, the renal crisis is often early on in the, the disease, but just watch that and watch their potassium. It might go up because of the renal failure. Okay. So, so captopril or, or ACE inhibitor up front, push the dose, be aggressive up front, and you can always reduce it later. And the second agent you're not too fussed about. The second Correct. agent is really, it's not about mechanism. Second agent's about actually getting the blood pressure down. Absolutely. And, and do you have any particular targets that you uh, um, aim for with your blood pressure control? Or do you right. look at what their what their baseline was, get back to that? Right. So it's interesting. Marie Hudson did a study and um, because she's very interested in renal crisis um, and she found something like, and if I say a half, maybe it was a third, but a third to a half had a documented blood pressure on their chart before, because some people, this is how they present and they mm-hmm. weren't at the doctor for two years. So many of our patients don't have one charted, but if they do, and it's recent, that's what I'm aiming for. So if your blood pressure was 110 over 70, that's what I want. And I think of it like pregnancy induced hypertension. We want a, a pregnant mom, not a renal crisis mom, like just a regular pregnant mom who has high blood pressure. We want to target it to their their normal low blood pressure that they had before that occurred. Same idea. You want to target to what was their normal blood pressure in the recent past. Okay, great. All right. So we got, we got skin, we got kidney next. uh, We're saving kind of lungs for the end. So next let's talk about GI and uh, we kind of went through each individual problem last time and in terms of investigations and we'll kind of do the same for, for treatment. So, so we'll, we'll start easy and get, get harder. So acid reflux or GERD, how do you typically manage that? So almost everyone has it. So if they're not complaining of it, I still think they have it, but it's probably subclinical. So it's right. almost 100%. So with that in mind, I'm very freely prescribing um, PPIs. And in general, whatever PPI is reimbursed for the patient, use and double it triple it and many can be quadrupled even though the approved dose is usually once a day and occasionally twice a day there's very few in fact probably only one and i'm going to forget but i think uh, i'm going to forget which one there's only one that after triple dose it's probably uh, a flat uh, equation of going of getting more bang for buck but mm-hmm. so you can exceed the dose so often um if it's a meprazole 20 milligrams a day then you know in a few weeks if it's not helping it's not an emergency unless if they have a severe rose of esophagitis, can't swallow, can't eat, but you're going to double it fairly quickly and get symptom control that way. And with any GERD, you want to have them not eat after supper, raise the head of the bed and avoid triggers. So the triggers, everything that's good, like alcohol, chocolate, caffeine, if that triggers them, peppermint, uh, avoid it. But for a lot of scleroderma patients, the trigger is having scleroderma because their whole tube is like a lead pipe that doesn't contract and the bottom of the esophagus valve is lower esophageal sphincter is wide open so they're just like freely refluxing upwards so they Mm -hmm. often don't have too many food triggers but if they do try to avoid that raise the head of the bed for sure we don't want lung aspiration right okay um then next how about dysphagia So that's a tough one. So usually I send them to GI. So I don't order manometry. We talked about that before, but if GI wants it, sure. But we treat them 
clinically, if food is sticking, can GI dilate? And the interesting thing about scleroderma uh, dysphagia is sometimes it is a stricture from reflux esophagitis. You start getting tissue buildup there and they can crack it open and patients are happy again until it eventually recurs because they're going to, if you're that badly off, you will continue to get some degree of reflux and scar. But right. for some of them, it's just purely dysmotility. And interestingly, sometimes when you dilate, you will actually get improvement, even though there is no stricture. So I send them off to GI and then with dysphagia, um, chewing your your food, water um, with you. They avoid, a lot of them avoid the dry foods that stick and just think of anything that might stick. If you're eating with a rush, that's the foods that usually someone with scleroderma doesn't like. Mm -hmm. Then I might do a promotility and I will still treat acid reflux because some of it might be exacerbated by uh, erosive esophagitis or just even low-grade erosions. It's not going to help the situation. So promotility, whether it's domperidone, 10 to 20 milligrams, up to QID, and I write aware of uh, Health Canada's recommendations, and the recommendations are don't go to that dose and don't use it long term. <laughs> so I'm aware of that. And if you're going to do um, domperidone or high dose um, metoclopramide, you do order an ECG because it keeps the world happy. Um, you can get a prolonged QT, which is true, but very uncommon. But it's an easy thing to do. If I'm on, if I have a patient on 20 QID of domperidone, I do order occasionally slash rarely an ECG. And then if not Rezotram, which is percolaprolamide, which I probably said wrong, that's Cisapride's cousin. Cisapride's off the market because it had one metabolic pathway. So you could get a prolonged QT more likely on that. Um, the Rezotram has two metabolic pathways. So it doesn't seem to prolong QT, at least in a really scary sort of way. And therefore we can actually use it, but it's not approved for that. It's approved for irritable bowel, but it's a really good promotility and it's, um, probably, possibly, without a lot of studies, possibly as good as, if not better than the other ones I talked about. And and can the, any of these be combined together or, or do you move from one to the next? Right. So for the promotilities, I don't put two on together unless if it's really severe. And if it's that severe, like where you might use domperidone four times a day and metoclopramide at nighttime. Um, if it's like that, I have GI involved because honest to goodness, yes. you don't want a bunch of drug drug interactions. But do I have a few patients that are on maybe even all two, like two or three promotilities? Yes. But they're also on three or four times the dose of PPI. So they're and they're usually on an H2 blocker at bedtime because that's the severe acid reflux, even if you don't have dysphagia, those patients rarely might need a surgical procedure like a modified Hill or Neeson. But then it's a problem because they already have a lead pipe esophagus and you're now shortening it. And that reflux, although you're trying to treat that, there's other issues that can occur. So it's not it's not ideal in scleroderma, but can can be prescribed under the right situation. Okay. So then the next is a uh small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So I'm very interested in how you approach the treatment for that. And then after I have a, a question from, from a listener. Oh, good. Excellent. So uh, basically, I um, when we talked about investigations, and people should listen to that podcast if they're interested, um, I, I clinically diagnose it. So I don't do a hydrogen breath test. So basically, uh, bloating, feeling early satiety, um, a lot of gas, and then 
severe diarrhea at the end of the whole diarrhea you might be better and over a period of time it all occurs again because the diarrhea you're actually um, defecating the some of the bacterial count so with that kind of uh, symptomatology that's quite significant and bothersome to the patient and I don't think it's irritable bowel because I'm not going to give antibiotics for regular irritable bowel, which anyone's allowed to have. Um, so if it's small bowel overgrowth um, by that kind of history, I use an antibiotic and um, you can use just about anything. So metronidazole, but not if they drink alcohol because they can get that disulfiram-like reaction, uh, like an antabuse reaction, which would be bad. But metronidazole is okay. It's not my first choice. Often I use easy ones like a amoxicillin, amoxyl, 500 milligrams TID times seven days with several refills. So use it again when they start getting bad again, because it's cyclical. I like erythromycin, which is often on back order. Why? You'd say, well, won't that give them diarrhea? It's because it's actually a promotility agent as well. And you want promotility because that's part of the problem. So erythromycin, when it's not on back order, I don't usually use clarithromycin. You can use tetracycline. You can use um, many different antibiotics. Cipro works, but we don't like drug resistance with um, uh, our COPDers who get pseudomonas and stuff. So Cipro works well, but I don't use it for that reason. And then mm-hmm. there's the um, rifamixin or something it's called that GI uses sometimes in their clinic. It's not reimbursed and I'm not even sure if I'm giving the right name, but it's supposed to be an antibacterial that's non-absorbed. Mm-hmm. Um, so that seems neat because then you won't get maybe thrush or vaginal yeast and things. So uh, Dr. Hain Kim, who uh, is a scleroderma expert out here in Vancouver, was interested if you have a patient with, let's say, chronic diarrhea and flatulence, but no overt uh, malnutrition. In those people, it sounds like you're, you're comfortable kind of doing a, an empiric trial of antibiotics. But how about when the symptoms recur, would you use chronic antibiotics? Right. So again, I because I see a lot of these patients, I feel comfortable giving chronic, which might be one week a month, or it might be that you're on indefinitely. If you're on indefinitely, I rotate them. I might have my favorite two or three that seem to help the patient one week, one week, one week, et cetera, like that. But in general, if you think it's that bad, please get your, your friendly gastros to help you because I've learned from them what I could do. So I think I know, but they actually know because mm-hmm. you want to make sure there's nothing else going on. Like I, I did have one guy only, but he basically um, developed celiac. He had terrible malnutrition with the scleroderma. And then he got worse and it was very strange. He got more anemic and lo and behold, he had something else going on as well. And neither he nor I knew he was gluten intolerant because he seemed intolerant of everything. Anything he ate was scooted right through him, sometimes even undigested. And their meds might be undigested too. So if they're pooping out their pills, you might have to change the brand, like not the brand, but a, a different drug in that class. Right. That makes sense. Okay, great. So... Uh, we, we covered Raynaud's previously, so we get to skip Raynaud's today, and we get to go to lungs. And uh, maybe we can start with uh, interstitial lung disease, and then we can talk about pulmonary hypertension uh, okay. afterwards. Yes. So ILD, so uh, one in three or one in four of our scleroderma patients, diffuse limited, will have interstitial lung disease. More if you did HRCT on every patient, uh, because you'll pick up some that are probably not ever going to be clinically relevant. But about one in six, it is absolutely clinically relevant. So you have to have a high index of suspicion. So uh, basically, 
Um, there's debate on when to treat, uh, less debate on what to treat with. So when to treat, um, there's two studies that have come out over the last year and they give different results. So you can believe either one or neither. So the one result, why not? So the one result is that if you treat early interstitial lung disease, I won't call it early, it can be early in the time frame, but mild interstitial lung disease with mycophenolate mofetil, you might not get as much progression. Another study showed um, early treatment didn't change progression and neither are studies like there's flaws in both studies. So I think the word's not really there yet. But you know, if we treat mild RA, maybe it won't go more moderate or severe. If we treat mild interstitial lung disease, we still will overtreat some patients because um, probably half of the interstitial lung disease and scleroderma will do them in. The other half won't. So, so sometimes we don't know who to treat. So the treatment though, we agree on in general, experts would say it's mycophenolate mofetil again, getting to three grams a day or my fortic if MMF isn't tolerated or isn't available, like accessed by their drug plan. And my fortic, uh, 360 of my fortic equals 500 of Celsept. So you're still trying to orient to that kind of dosing to maximum dose. Start low, go slow, because a lot of people um, will get uh, more side effects if you uh, start at full dose. And the side effects, GI, diarrhea, or sometimes they're agitated. They feel ants in their pants, creepy crawly kind of feelings. And I don't know what that means or what it is, but if I go down on the dose, it usually resolves. So I usually start at um, 500 milligrams BID and two to four weeks, if well tolerated, fire off a CBC, ALT, creatinine, if you want it, um, uh, double it. And in another two to four weeks, if well tolerated, try to get to 1.5 grams twice a day. I do monthly labs. It's all arbitrary what to do, but monthly labs times three, then Q3 monthly. And and I'm really looking at CBC and a liver enzyme, ALT, a transaminase. But if you mm-hmm. wanted to do creatinine or other stuff, you certainly can. And on a CBC, you, you look at the diff as well. And we don't get too many cytopenias on it. Mm-hmm. And um, so MMF has the choice up front. And I, I guess you get a, a, a reasonable bang for your buck in terms of treatment of some of the other symptoms, the skin, as you mentioned. It's perhaps easier to access and easier to to write a script for it than cyclo. Um, who are you going to use Cyclo in upfront? So uh, two kinds of people, the really high skin score. So for those of you who understand the modified Rodman skin score, you hardly ever see someone over 30. That would be really quite significant skin involvement because you're not going to get three all over your body, but 30 is pretty high. So the really high skin scores, I might try methotrexate or MMF for like two to four months. And if they're worsening as opposed to, I don't expect improvement yet, but if they're worsening, I'm going to switch over to oral cyclo or IV. And that really depends on line access when they're that tight, um, mm-hmm. local access or your own access to IV or oral, but oral cyclo is okay. That was in the scleroderma lung study was oral cyclo. Like it's okay. We use oral cyclo or IV and ankyovasculitis. So it's not inappropriate to consider one or the other. It's um, something that I would consider, or I would quickly get into um, cyclophosphamide. If say, um, for some reason, we know their lungs before their scleroderma or at the onset were quite good or normal. Say you were 96% predicted TLC, FEC, residual volume, and DLCO. And now you're 
80% predicted in six months and it was done right. It was a good test. A person didn't have a cold or something. That is worrisome. And you go 80% predicted. That's like almost, that's normal. That's, a, you know, but it's a big drop. So mm-hmm. someone with a big drop, I'm just going to move on to cyclo because not that I think it's way better, but you know, if one year of cyclo equals two years of um, MMF, we know it probably is a bit more powerful because they didn't give two years of cyclo. And that doesn't mean I'm giving two years. It means I'm trying to do induction for a year or six months or something. So, and, and I think that's kind of important. And I, I maybe I kind of um, missed it when I was in training, but the cyclo regimen for a scleroderma patient, at least as per the trial, that's a full year of cyclophosphamide. And that's compared to like, um, lupus literature or ankyovasculitis literature where, where we're really trying to, to squeeze that into like three months, six months, you know, not many people are treated beyond that with cyclo. Um, are you still using a regimen that's, uh, that's a year of cyclophosphamide? Um, I am. If, if you're bad enough to need cyclo, I'm probably going to add mm-hmm. or switch because if you're a failure of that, I'm going to move on to somewhat proven, slightly anecdotal stuff beyond it. But basically, um, that kind of person, I'm not worried about things like lymphoma down the road or bladder cancer, because if you're that active, your predicted five-year survival is not going to be favorable. It would be a 50% five-year survival. Okay. So so perhaps in your, your sickest ILD or your more rapidly progressive ILD or your very rapidly progressive skin disease, um, even with the results of the scleroderma trial, lung trial, you'd still reach for cyclo for your your sicker patient. Is that is that so? Yeah, yeah. Or I give a shorter course of the uh, MMF. I'd say I'm right, worried and let's try something else fairly quickly. It just really depends. But I'm not. I don't shy away from cyclo. It just usually would not be my first line. Okay. And um, we kind of hinted at it before, but in terms of the the indications you're using a, a cutoff of what in terms of a drop in their DLCO FBC ratio? Is there, is there a good indication where we decide that's a rapid progression? Uh, are there cutoffs? Are there clear guidelines right. there? So if in um, six to 12 months, you have ILD. So HRCT shows you have it. You have a restrictive pattern and you drop an absolute 5%. Uh, that's uh, that's sort of not going in the right direction, obviously. If you drop 10%, you're a rapid progressor and that's not great. And, and we're talking 10% in uh, DLCO? Uh, I, I would want to see, I don't want anyone to drop stuff, but I would, I would <laughs> assume that, right? So yeah. I would assume that FVC... TLC and DLCO are all going in the wrong direction together because in fairness, DLCO could drop if I had a cold and come back up next week when I don't have an upper respiratory tract infection or, you know, some phlegm or something with a bronchitis. So DLCO is a little bit finicky. So if one goes up and two go down, you have to kind of say, what does that mean? And, and, you know, that's a whole nother podcast that's beyond uh, (laughs) our our knowledge. Okay, so that makes sense. So, so a, a change over the course of a year of somewhere around ten percent um, in uh, two out of three, or uh, they're 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 trending poorly, um, even if they're still within normal limits, it's different than their their baseline. Okay, great. Um, how about biologics, antifibrotics, stem cell for ILD? 
and right. then we can then we can chat yes. about uh, pulmonary hypertension. Right. So stem cell has the data of severe skin in our earlier diffuse patients, or and or already having lung disease that I'll call it clinically relevant. The patient might not have dyspnea, but that you can make a diagnosis of lung disease that you think will progress and moderate skin. So that's the autologous um, hemopoietic stem cell transplant. That's sort of the data of inclusion criteria. Mm -hmm. If we're going to look at uh, biologics for interstitial lung disease in the US, uh, tocilizumab, so the IL-6 inhibitor uh, was approved uh, for the wording is something such as uh, preventing progression of lung disease, but they didn't have lung disease, some of them. So the progressors were only a minority um, of the patients because it was active, early, diffuse systemic sclerosis. And if they were under under two years, they could be in on a certain skin score. But if they were two to however many years, I kind of forget, um, they had to have worsening or um, skin, modify rodent by worsening by three points documented, um, or they had a new area um, involved on the skin score scale. Like now you have truncal, say, or now you have abdomen mm-hmm. involved. So it was a skin primary outcome which was a P of 0.06, not a very strong effect, uh, but it was monotherapy. It wasn't like the, you were allowed to escape patients with MMF or methotrexate or azathioprine if their skin worsened by five points. So hardly anyone escaped, but more people needed to escape in placebo than active, which I guess indirectly shows you that active was probably doing something, but the skin score change was not very impressive. It was a Delta of three. I think it was like a six points compared to three points on placebo and placebo was the error, the test, or the, maybe the natural history of the patients over a year, you usually don't improve three points in early disease, but you know, a placebo effect did occur. So a Delta of uh, three points on the modified Rodman. I, do you, uh, this is an unfair question, but do you remember off the top of your head with cyclo? Um, like, what's the delta you're looking for there? Yeah, I do remember. So cyclo was. <laughs> of course uh, you do. Yeah, I do. So cyclo, there are some cyclo studies, um, scleroderma lung study one. So it was a delta of 5.9 or something. So it was a delta of six okay. versus placebo. And in the uh, scleroderma lung study two, it was six points but they only got treated a year and then nothing on cyclo. And it was uh, three points over two years on MMF. Now, again, these all didn't have high, hot skin. So some of them would be (laughs) stable for the lung study. Okay. So tocilizumab, um, not, not the, the studies aren't directly comparable, obviously different studies, but you get about a Delta of three compared to placebo for the skin and cyclophosphamide, maybe about six for the, the skin there. Okay. Um, any other biologics that, that you think of for, for the, for ILD in particular? Right. And so I, I've not used tocilizumab yet for lung. I did, um, Mm -hmm. we did have people in the first of the two tocilizumab trials, but it wasn't for lung. It was for skin and they only in a trial setting have I used it. So, but, uh, rituximab, so rituximab is off label and that is an issue of uh, access, but there are three randomized controlled trials um, there's, there's some other case series and rituximab doesn't always work by any means, but for some people it's quite good. And anecdotally, I think it's better in year two. So giving a gram IV 
times two, Q6 monthly, and seeing the skin improve often at the end of a year, six to 12 months if we're lucky, and more improvement in uh, second year, it seems, and this is anecdotal now, me saying second mm-hmm. year, but there was a um, a six-month uh, rituximab versus IV cyclo out of India, and it was better on skin, and it was better on lungs, and there was a study out of Japan that was rituximab versus placebo. Um, it's in press, I think in Lancet Rheumatology or about to be out in Lancet Rheumatology, but it was just presented at the ACR uh, Convergence 2021 meeting. And that certainly, that was from Japan and showed this same thing that obviously, it's, I won't say obviously in scleroderma, but it was better than placebo. And it also had um, some improvement, like clinically relevant mean change on lungs and clinically relevant change on skin. Okay, so so that, that's an option then for lung and skin. Do you kind of slot that in as maybe a third line behind MMF and Cyclo? Uh, it depends. Sometimes on MMF, I'll, I'll add Retox. Sometimes uh, MMF uh, to Cyclo. And then on Cyclo, I'll go over to Retox and wonder if I should restart MMF. So you can get the sense mm-hmm. I'm not always doing a monotherapy um, right. approach. But obviously, I'm not putting MMF and Cyclo together. Okay, great. So, so that was a, a whirlwind tour through ILD, which is, of course, a really complicated uh, component of, of uh, care here. Other than um, Daniel, sorry, I forgot to say oh, antifibrotics. Yeah, yeah. So, Nintendo oh, right, is for patients with progressive pulmonary fibrosis or, or worsening interstitial lung disease that is from scleroderma. They have approvals in other ILD like RA fibrosing. So it's not just unique to scleroderma, but the scleroderma trial uh, showed that you worsened on this drug over the next year uh, by uh, a certain amount, but you doubly worsened on placebo. And if you were on intendinib plus mycophenolate mofetil, you had the best preservation of FVC, absolute, not percent predicted, it was absolute amount of um of milliliters they were looking at. And uh, so the best preservation or least amount of worsening was MMF plus nintendinib. Then it was either MMF or nintendinib. And then it was being on neither. So kind of like a dose response, two drugs seem to be better than one, one drug seemed to be better than none. But it wasn't, they didn't stratify randomization by MMF. But interestingly, and luckily, about half the patients in each side, whether you're on active or placebo, were on MMF. So there's enough power in what I'm telling you to say, although the trial wasn't designed to look at, are the two drugs better than one? They did find it, and it makes, to me, biologic sense, immune suppression and antifibrotic. And some people think nintendinib has some anti-inflammatory effect as well. And then just briefly, perfenidone has approval in the U.S. now with a trial stop due to futility because they couldn't enroll well, but it actually became positive for fibrosing lung disease beyond IPF. So if we ever get that approval in Canada, that would also allow a different antifibrotic for our patients. You don't combine the antifibrotic. And you want an expert in that area to help you, which isn't me. I mean, a respirologist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to, you know, in, in being aware of those studies, I'm trying to decide kind of the, the sequence of or the combination of all these uh, different treatments that there seems to be evidence for MMF, cyclo, retux, um, antifibrotics. How do I know when and where and, and how to combine it? or stem cell, right? These are these are big treatments that... Um, seem like we're, we're likely going to bump into uh, major side effects by using them. So these aren't that benign. 
necessarily. And I'm wondering if you have kind of an idea of where you're going to fit antifibrotics into your kind of treatment approach. Right. So antifibrotics do not soften the skin like Nintendinib did skin scores in those patients on the census trial, which only had systemic sclerosis patients in it. Their in-build trial had some scleroderma patients, RA, um, sarcoid, et cetera. So they had a whole mix of people, the other trial. So the skin score didn't budge. So we're doing it to basically try to slow that, um, unrelenting scarring and loss of alveoli gas exchange in the lungs. So it's really, first of all, it's very expensive. Uh, Secondly, it doesn't reverse. It probably prolongs survival, but you're going to go downhill. Whereas at the beginning, I'm trying to get you uphill as meaning an improvement. I want to up your PFTs. I want them better. So I think you really want to be sure that this is not, uh, non, it has to be severe enough, but if they're way too severe, we had a patient the other day and now she's beyond getting Nintendo because her DLCO is 24% predicted and her FVC and TLC are like 32% predicted. She's not going to be a candidate because her DLCO excludes her because it was a study exclusion if you're really, really bad. So we would like to have her not go downhill as quickly, but it's, you know, it's, she knows that she's not going to be around a long time. So it sounds like to kind of find the the sweet spot yeah. for some of these medications, it's it's really a combined approach, absolutely multidisciplinary. Yeah. Definitely working with your uh, your local scleroderma uh, super expert. So and your local and a good respirologist because there are respirologists that are very they absolutely. that know a lot about IPF, but there's some that know a lot about IPF and do other ILD. If if able, get the IPF and ILD person because then they're used to our immune suppressives and don't want to stop them immediately. Right. Okay. Okay. And then that brings us to pulmonary hypertension. So um, I know there's been some movement there, some interesting studies. I'm, I'm curious about your kind of graduated right. uh, approach there. Yep. So treating pulmonary arterial hypertension, which must be proven by right heart catheterization. So it's not on an echo. An echo is your screen, your confirmatory test, of course, is the right heart cath. So if you have pulmonary arterial hypertension, and you have scleroderma, and we think it's from your scleroderma, not, um, say, pH, that's not PAH, but um, from your hypoxia, from your ILD, or pH from your obstructive sleep apnea, et cetera. We're saying PAH. So if we're treating PAH, it's like RA. Get on with it. Earlier is better. Um, treat to a target. Add, don't subtract. So it's all that kind of stuff. Combination up front, which is sort of how I treat, not sort of, but it's how many of us treat RA, not necessarily in all guidelines, but combo therapy kind of idea. So if you think of it like diabetes type two these days or like RA, just get on, have a high index of suspicion, screen, make the diagnosis. You have to be class two, meaning some degree of dyspnea to qualify or worse to qualify for any of the drugs. Um, And uh, there's three and a half classes of drugs and you can combine anything other than I'll call it a half. That's not what they would call it. But <laughs> quad, uh, we don't always have good access to it anyway, because their data were um, not initially done in our kind of PAH patients, but Rio Sequat, um, cyclical, um, um, 
I don't know, whatever, guanase, I'm saying it wrong, but basically it increases uh, uh, nitric oxide as do PDE5s. So you don't combine those two. So uh, PDE5s, there's at least two on the market approved for pulmonary arterial hypertension. Uh, That's the first thing uh, that you might consider or an endothelial receptor blocker or the two together. Then, so it's often the two together because two drugs slow worsening more or and get more improvement, then uh, you treat to a target. If it's not going well, you're going to consider adding a prostacycline, which could be inhaled. It could be a central line continuous. It could be sub-Q continuous, or it could be a pro- oral prostacycline analog. And you can do it other ways, like a PDE5 and a prostacycline or an endothelium receptor and a prostacycline. But often it's PDE5 plus endothelium receptor, then add the next. If they don't get... You you want them in the green, meaning good. It's like red light, yellow light, green light. You want people okay. to move from high risk to medium to low. If they're in low risk, you can start monotherapy. And that's like almost too much information for us as rheumatologists. You need the PAH expert team and they'll figure it out and you'll keep supporting the patient and sending them back in between if say they're in right heart failure or worsening or something. Got it. Well. Well, that is super helpful. It just kind of a big picture, 10,000 foot view. Do you have any other kind of tips around treatment that that we should that that uh, the general rheumatologist needs to know? Well, the patients with scleroderma do have pain. So don't forget about that. Um, poor mood and frank depression are co- more common than you might imagine. Well, we would guess it is, but but don't be afraid to address uh, people's body image uh, issues or uh, addressing uh, their mood, their pain. And so think the way we would treat uh, chronic pain and mood in our other chronic uh, diseases. Think about that. Uh, think about bone health. Um, uh, follow their cholesterol because they do have excess cardiovascular death, but not the same magnitude of risk the way you would in, say, RA. So think of the other lessons you've learned from lupus and rheumatoid arthritis and apply them to your patients. And be a good listening ear because sometimes with scleroderma, we can't do a lot. We might have a lot of damage. We can't treat their calcium things like that. And just listen and try to be helpful and treat what's treatable. Always treat what's treatable. Janet, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much for uh, all that really uh, helpful information, wise tips. Great. Thanks. And I'm going to look forward to our next topic, NYD. (laughs) That's right. All right. Well, we'll take care and I'll I'll talk to you next time. All right. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode of Around the Room. For questions, comments, and future episode ideas, email us at info at room.ca or tag our Twitter account with your question at C-R-A-S-C-R-Room. Around the Room is produced by David McGuffin, Dr. Dax Rumsey, and Kevin Bagenoth. We'd like to give a special thanks to the Communications Committee and the staff of the CRA for all of their hard work. And of course, as always, an extra special thanks to Dr. Janet Pope. Our theme music was composed by Aaron Fontwell. If you enjoyed your time with us, please give us a rating and subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. You can also share this podcast with your colleagues and spread the word on social media. I'm Daniel Ennis. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.